0: book of Matthew, chapter 9, as we continue on in this series called Heart for the Harvest. Now, last week, and last week's uh, sermon, we, we called it the mission of God, and we looked and we uh, said, hey, you know, this really isn't about us. This is ultimately about God. And so the first and foremost for us to develop a heart for mission is to ultimately recognize that God is the one who is on the mission. He is our hope. He is the one in whom we proclaim. And ultimately, he is the source of all strength. It is his mission. He is. And to develop first and foremost a heart for mission is to have a heart for God. To see him in his glory and his beauty and his wonder. And we'll continue on in that theme Uh, this this today as we look at Matthew chapter 9 we're going to be looking at verses 35 and we're going to go on into chapter 10 verse 1 this morning hear now the word of the Lord and Jesus went through all the cities and the villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to them 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth within it. We thank you, Lord, that you reveal your heart to us through your word and through your son, Jesus Christ. Enable us through your grace to see the vision and the wonder of who you are of your compassion, of your power, of your goodness, and that it would overwhelm us and change us this morning by your grace, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When I was in high school, one of the, one of my early jobs was I worked for uh, what was the, called the Tulsa Drillers. They are a minor league team in Tulsa. They're double-A. Uh, they used to be affiliated with the Texas Rangers. They're no longer... Uh, They're under new ownership now, but they essentially used to be what is now in Frisco. Now during that time, this was an older stadium. Um, It it wasn't a new stadium in any way, it had been around for quite some time. And as I began working there very early, within a day or two of my working, my immediate supervisor who was a full-time worker, I was just a part-time student. As we were rocking around, uh, we saw before the game, there was this older gentleman. He was a well-kept-together older gentleman. He was, uh, uh, you know, not necessarily wearing a suit or anything, but you could tell he was someone who kept his appearance up. There was nothing that was uh, ostentatious about him at all. In fact, I noticed he, I'd even seen him one time driving around, and he just drove a simple uh, car. It was a nice car, but it was not, nothing... Uh, ostentatious about it in any way, shape, or form. But as I walked in, I I didn't know who he was, but uh, my immediate supervisor said, hey, you know, see that guy over there? Yeah, okay. That guy is the owner of the club. He owns the Tulsa Drillers. Now, of course, they're affiliated with the Rangers, but he was the one who owned the local club within that. He owned all the property, and ultimately, it was his team, so to speak. He said, that guy is the owner, and what you'll see is him walking around picking up trash around the, um, around the ballpark. Really? Yeah. In fact, sometimes what you'll see is after the game, he will go across the street to the Albertsons, across the street, and look to make sure there was no trash from the ballpark that had gone into the, uh, into the, into the property of the neighbors within that. And he'll go around and picking up trash. Wow, that's, that's pretty interesting but then my supervisor turned and he looked at me he said now here's this you see the owner is picking up trash what does that mean for you that means you as a grunt employee at the very bottom of the chain that means if he is looking around and he sees you not picking up trash you're in trouble So you better, whenever you see him looking around, you better make sure that if you see a piece of trash, you go ahead and pick it up. Now, let me share the heart of a 16, 17-year-old child. What I heard in that is when he is looking and watching, I need to pick up trash within there. Now, guess what I didn't do? I did not pick up trash when I did not see a supervisor around. Because that's the heart of a teenage child, of one who doesn't fully understand, one who simply just doesn't want to get in trouble. However, as I've matured and I've thought and i meditated on the, the leadership of that man, what I began to see is something that was really quite good, beautiful, and wonderful. As someone who is now a, a leader in charge of property and wondering, hey, what does it look like for us to be good neighbors to those who are around us, to Grace Prep and to Hardus, and to ultimately a community that has a very visible location for Arlington? What does this mean for us? What does this look for us? Is there something truly beautiful about us saying to the community, we care what we are doing? And I began looking and saying, hey, this isn't about just simply obeying a boss, but really having a heart that can, is able to see that which is good and beautiful within there. And so during the sermon series, what and, and let me step back just a minute. Another thing that I noticed as I was reflecting on this, I have since that time, in, when I was a 16, 17 year old, I really hadn't gone to a lot of professional stadiums. In fact, the Tulsa Drillers was the only thing that could even remotely qualify as going to a professional stadium. As I've gone on and looked back, now I began thinking through, you know, the Tulsa Drillers Stadium, it was just a real small, dinky stadium, really, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It certainly wasn't modern in any way, shape, or form, but yet as I began thinking through my time there, it was always well-maintained. It was always looking good. When you went to the bathrooms, you didn't feel like you needed to go take a shower afterwards, right? And having reflected and been to many other, you know, more brand name or higher end stadiums, I can say, hey, that is certainly not something that is universal or true. There was something that was good about that situation, about the way that owner treated his property. As we've been looking at missions and we've been saying, what does it mean for us to be a people that is, has a heart of missions? Last week we said it begins with understanding the heart of missions, begins with understanding of the heart of God, a God who is on mission. But in developing this heart of mission... What we're saying is also we don't want it to be just like a 17-year-old who looks and says, well, I want to do this only when somebody is watching me or when somebody's looking so that I don't want to get in trouble. But rather, the vision for the kingdom, the true heart for mission, looks at it and says, this is that which is good. This is that which is beautiful. It is able to look at the world, see it in all its brokenness, but even more than that... Because if all you see is brokenness, you'll you'll dive into cynicism and despair. But rather than that, to look at it and say, there is a greater kingdom. There is a beautiful kingdom that is not only worth working for, but dying for. A kingdom that is so good in his glory and his power. That why would we do anything other than have a heart? for this harvest, a heart for this kingdom. And that's what I want us to look at today as we continue to look into the heart of God to see his vision for a kingdom, to allow it to take root and plant seeds in our heart that develop to see God's glory and goodness, to see a heart that longs for the beauty of the kingdom itself. And so, as we look at this, the first thing I want us to point out and see is this. One of the first things we see within this is a good and compassionate king. A good and compassionate king within there. And so, as we look back at verses 9... What we see is a king who first and foremost is one who is filled with compassion. He is one who is filled with love towards his people. Now, if we were to look at Matthew chapter chapter 9, 35, and we were to study it, and this is one of the problems when you move into a a, a chapter of the Bible without having moved through the rest of it, sometimes you can miss quite easily uh, some of the things that are going on within uh, the book of the Bible is itself the the passage, the overall presentation of the gospel that Matthew is giving us from chapter one to chapter twenty-eight, right? And one of the things that we miss is seeing that what we see in Matthew chapter nine thirty-five is almost identical to what we see in Matthew chapter four verse twenty-three. You see. Matthew moves a lot of times through these different sections, ultimately five different sections that revolve around some of Jesus' discourses. And in chapter 4.23 is the beginning of one of the first of these sections. And so we, lead, we can compare them, and it begins in 4.23. And it says, And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction of the people. Well, you can see how that compares to... 9:35, uh, and Jesus went through all the cities and the villages, teaching their synagogues and, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing, every disease and every affliction. Now what, what you see here is that means chapter nine is ultimately a transition section, it is both summarizing what had just happened in chapters five through nine of Matthew, but it is also showing how that is linked to what is about to come in chapters 10 through 12. So this is summarizing what has happened already, but also moving us forward towards what Matthew is going to be presenting to us in chapters 10 through 12. So there's a link, there's a connection there for us to get. And one of the key connections that you see is you see a a king, Jesus, who is the, uh, the heart of God. He is God's Messiah, God sent one who is God himself. And so in seeing Jesus, you see the heart of the Father. And what it reveals is a king himself who is on mission, who is going about and he is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction of the people. He moves on then in chapter 4, that in chapter four twenty three that becomes a summary of what about, we're about to see in 5 through 9. And it begins first with Jesus giving a vision of the kingdom. It is the section that we often call the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus begins, we begin to see this proclamation of the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. And it is this glorious, the greatest sermon ever preached, you could say. And in this sermon, you see this glorious um, reversal at play. In the midst of the brokenness of this world, you see a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom in which God's children love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see at the very pinnacle of the Sermon of the Mount, at the verse, and be holy for the Lord your God is holy. Now we can look at that, and sometimes be daunted by that because it seems so uh, unattainable, right? We look, <clears throat> I can never be holy. That word there, holy, is ultimately saying be complete as the Lord your God is complete. But ultimately, if we really catch it for what it is, it is a glorious vision. It is a vision of God's kingdom which transforms his people into that which we were always supposed to be. And in the process of being a people who love God with all their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, you see it as the people who know God. They're able to pray to the living God. They're able to know that the living God hears their prayer and responds to that prayer. And there's ultimately not just an impersonal kingdom, but a kingdom in which Jesus knows his people and the people are known. A kingdom of incredible power, but of, of deep personal relationship as well. And we see as that kingdom work itself out, we see it is a kingdom in which people treat one another fundamentally different than the ways of the world. The way that power works gets turned upside down in this kingdom. But we don't try to bring about this kingdom through force, but rather in loving submission to the king It becomes fundamentally different. Instead of the, the blessed be those who have the power of the sword, it's blessed are those who are poor in spirit. It's a call for those to not only to, to refrain from destructive habits, but hearts themselves that love your neighbor as yourself. It's a vision of a beautiful kingdom. But then what you see. In chapters eight and nine, you begin to see Jesus, this great and passionate, compassionate shepherd, not only gives us a vision, a sermon of the kingdom, he begins to show its power coming into this world in magnitude. You see a king who goes and he confronts the brokenness of this world. You see a king who comes in and he confronts the brokenness of the bodies. He confronts people who, who have been born blind, who have been oppressed, who have been put into shame, exiled from the worship of God, people. Uh, a woman who has this blood disease, who's been separated from the worship of God. You see, not only is she healed, but she's known, she's seen, she's not invisible. You see, this man who confronts death itself, Jesus confronts death itself and raises this daughter to life. But not only does he confront the physical infirmities, he also confronts the, the false leaders. We see that he, and we see this in, 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 in chapter nine thirty-five. he said they look like sheep without a shepherd, right? Well, this is an Old Testament allusion, particularly in Ezekiel chapter 34, where he rebukes His people, because the shepherds have not been leading them well. They haven't been leading them into places of justice. His people have been sheep without a shepherd and he sees that he is the good shepherd who confronts the false leadership of this world. He chastises them and shows them a true and better king who's not only a king but a shepherd who has compassion upon them. And he goes even further because he goes on to confront the brokenness of sin. And so you see a man who is paralytic, who has calm for healing. But before he heals his legs, Jesus looks at him and says, your sins have been forgiven. You see a king who confronts the demonic powers of this world and they have no power against him; They are cast out. You see a king who comes into the brokenness of this world and confronts a strong man that has been opposing his children and in his compassion and his love, he casts out. He is the victorious king who is taking back that which is his. And so, friends, as we look for the heart of God in the broken world, we look and we see the power and the kindness of Jesus. We see a king filled with power and filled even more with power, with love, with grace. So what does that point us to, friends? That point us to if we are to have a heart for the kingdom, it becomes a kingdom that is able to hold two things in tension. The two things are the bigness of the kingdom that is able to confront the brokenness of this world holistically. Body. Injustice, relationships, but also sin. But at the same time, in the bigness of this kingdom, what you see is a personal kingdom, a kingdom that sees each individual in the midst of their hurt and their pain. Yes, there are places that are big swaths of, of Jesus' healed people, as summaries, but it is also filled with the acknowledgement that This wasn't just in mass, so to speak, but a Jesus who saw the individual hurts of the people within there. People who are moved towards people, or a king who's moved towards people, excuse me. And so for us to first, to capture our heart for the harvest, our hearts are captured by the beauty of this king and the wonder of his glory and his goodness. We see this and we say, wow, this is beautiful within there. But in the process of that as well, we learn something else. You see, we, as we look at Jesus, it enables us then to look at the world in all of its brokenness as well. And as we see and we hold Jesus there with us, it enables us to... To, to do something that we could not do otherwise. It enables us to do lament. Now, why do I say that's, that's not something we can do otherwise? Because lament is fundamentally different than the way we have sorrow in this world. You see, if we were to have earthly sorrow, we would try to, to deal with the brokenness. We would have to do it a, a couple of different ways. Number one, we'd have to downplay how broken it was. Otherwise, we, it would crush us in the weight of the brokenness because we could see there's no hurt. Or what we would do is we try to find uh, some ways um, to, to say we can answer this in our own strength, to try to solve it, which as we do, once again, the weight of that would crush us. We can't do it in and of ourselves and of our own. We'd be crushed under the burden. But lament enables us to hold two tensions in together and that is the tension of being able to see the broken world to recognize this isn't the way it's supposed to be and so we're not crushed by cynicism we're not crushed by the brokenness of it because we're also that lament is able to look towards a savior a king who is coming and saying we can have hope as well we can have hope as well because christ is coming and breaking into his kingdom." And so we see a compassionate Savior, but we're also able to develop a heart by able to look, by, because it enables us to look at the brokenness of the kingdom, to recognize it in all its brokenness, in all of its frailty, and all of its wickedness, but to do so in the paradox of being able to hold hope together in the midst of it at the same time. You see, as we look at a broken world, once again, as we've already stated, we see... A broken body. We see people filled with death. We see people filled with hurt. We feel people that have been enduring the trauma, as, as, as Dan and Rachel talked about, of living in a broken world. We're able to acknowledge that and to say, this is wrong. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. We're able to look at the brokenness of relationships that take place that often lead to those Traumas and brokenness of body, but also we're able to see the brokenness of sin that undergirds all of it within there. Right? We will see a real broken body, but that enables us to finally say we're going to pray for a kingdom, more than we're going to pray for band aids. What do I mean by that? First off. I chose my words very carefully there. Pray for a kingdom more than pray for Band-Aids. You see, as we look at, and we're able to confront the overall brokenness of this world, we're able to see that there's not a simple, easy solution that's gonna come to us through politics. There's not a simple, easy solution that's gonna come to us through a, non, through a, a non-profit organization. There's not a simple, easy solution that can come to us through uh, education. Now, all of these things are good things when done well. And so there is a real thing to common grace. And so there is something for to us to pray for things like a society to recapture a vision for marriage, right? If there is something to us to say, hey, we're going to stand up for the most, un-vulnerable, uh, the most vulnerable in our population, the unborn. There's something to us to say we're gonna step in and out of the love of Christ, we're going to feed people who are hungry. These are all good things that testify to our hope and our recognition that there is real brokenness in this world. And so we pray for those things, but we recognize that is not where our hope ends. There is a deeper hope that as we do go about these things, as we pray for this transformation in this side, as we vote, for example, for certain things that we believe that help stem the tide against um, a society collapsing upon itself, we also recognize there is a deeper kingdom that we ultimately long for, that we ultimately pray for as well. So Jesus says, "Pray the Lord of the harvest." We pray for the kingdom. Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, as he teaches his prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Become a people of prayer. Not just for band-aids who are not focused just on the politics of this world, but understand the deeper need is for a king and a kingdom where God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But then, what we see is something else as we move, as we continue to move on into uh, this verse. Then Jesus said to his disciples, "The harvest is plentiful." So it's given us a vision of Jesus, and we've seen if we look at. Chapters 5 through 9, what you see is Jesus himself is breaking into this kingdom of darkness. He is establishing his kingdom as he heals what you see. These are audiovisual presentations of God's kingdom come, right? They are demonstrations of the kingdom come in power, They're also authenticating his authority of who he is as king. He is the true sent one. He is the one, he is Messiah's sent one to come and to bring about his kingdom. But they are also, like I said, audiovisual presentations of God's kingdom come as those who have been separated from the worship of God. He comes and he touches them and he restores them holistically, right? He's able to forgive sin. He's able to heal the blind, even raise the dead. So we've seen that Jesus is this king, it's his kingdom. But then what he's going to do is he's going to establish sent ones who go out in his name and in his power. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Well, up to this point, we've really only seen one laborer, and that's Jesus, right? You might make an argument for John the Baptist in the Gospel of Matthew, but really Jesus is the only laborer, which of course matches is what we talked about last week. God is the one who's the God on mission. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. Now notice how much of this is focused on God. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one that we await to send out. Laborers, and ultimately it makes it very clear that this is his harvest. So, in other words, this isn't negating saying, okay, for a while this has been God's mission. I'm tired of doing this, so I'm going to send you out. This is your mission now. No, this is still all 100% God's mission that he is the one doing. And he called over, and that we often end right there, but what there's the, the chapter break. Is, is, is kind of a false break in many ways. That wasn't part of the original text. It's just one way we've tried to organize um, to be able to, to reference and go back and forth within our English translations. Uh, in reality, this is all one flow of thought. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. In other words, he is calling out people and he is sending them out so that they would mimic or go in the authority of what he had already been doing in chapters 8 and 9. They themselves have responded to the kingdom of God, saved by the king themselves. They've seen this vision of this shepherd king filled with compassion and love and glory and grace. And now he's saying, first of all, recognizing this comes through, this is my mission. It comes only as you are in communion with me. And through my authority and my power, I'm going to send you out. You, just as Jesus finds his identity as the sent one of the Father, he is now sending out his children, his disciples, in his power and in his name. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? This is... Something that is truly and wonderfully glorious. When we step back and think about it. When we try to not just look at this in Matthew, but try to look at this in the whole scope of biblical revelation. Because if we go back, all the way back to Genesis, in the very foundation, what we see was when man was created... As God has established his kingdom on this world, this kingdom of this creation that is without sin, you see he created this garden, and this garden called Eden. And we often focus on the garden, but when you see it and you read it in its Hebrew and you read it in its understanding, Eden was a representation of a temple, of God's presence amongst his people. And in this place in creation, he established Adam and Eve to be his image bearers, to cultivate and work the garden. In other words, before sin came in, they were to be his priests, they were to be his workers in this world. Now, sin comes in, and all this becomes broken. We become alienated from God. We're broken from one another. Sin comes in. Everything becomes a mess. Do you see how then this becomes glorious and good? As God is taking back that which is his, he is taking back his people. He is indwelling them with the spirit. And once again, his people become his image bearers reflecting his glory throughout the world. The very fact that we're being sent out is part of God's restoration of that which was always supposed to be. Us in such deep communion with the Father through the Son and the Spirit, through the work of the Spirit. We become doing what the Father was doing. We become real true image bearers once again into this world. This is a beautiful work of restoration of God's kingdom. It's not because he needs us per se. This is part of his redemptive work. It's part of him reclaiming that which is lost. So what does it look like then as we were to kind of take all this together and apply it? What does it look like then for us to be a people? Sent ones who are developing a heart for the harvest. If we are to look to be a people who are more than just workers who want to come about, and when the boss is looking, does their job, but really, but people who have a true who have been really recognized that this is a true good and wonderful kingdom. If we're being honest, a lot of us in our process of still being sanctified, we haven't reached that place fully. We haven't reached that place of having that full heart for the harvest that's found in in our Father. How does he sanctify us? How does he work in us to produce that heart? Well, the first thing is already stated right there, pray. Pray. We pray to the Lord of the harvest. Now, in, what are we doing in that prayer? First, we're, we're lamenting. We're looking at the brokenness of the world. We're not shying our eyes back. We're seeing it in all of its horror, but we're doing so as we lament it. We're saying this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is, not, this is, this is, against, this is an open rebellion against God. That's why whenever I do a funeral, one of the things I always try to say and emphasize is that in the midst of this funeral, we still grieve. We still acknowledge that this is not right. Death is not right. The very fact that we still have funerals means that this world is still in open rebellion against God. But yet we have hope because Christ has risen from the dead. That means this isn't the end. So we're able to look at all the stings of this world. And we don't shield our eyes back, but we look at it and we pray against it. We acknowledge this is wrong. <laughs> but then we move and say, but Christ has risen from the dead. He is coming in his kingdom. We pray, Lord, for the Lord of the harvest to gather your harvest. So pray and lament, but also pray for God's kingdom come. Pray. Pray and begin to ask, God, what are you doing for me, calling me to do as a sent one for you? Open my heart to see and to long the beauty of your kingdom. Right? And so, but the other part of that, friends, is intentional kingdom living. Intentional kingdom living. You see... Developing a heart for a harvest isn't simply saying, hey, you know what? I want to send a bunch of money over to, to Africa or to uh, Southeast Asia or to China so that other people can do it. But rather, we see the beauty and the glory of the kingdom that is so good. We want to see that in the process of everywhere we go. And part of the ways that we can develop a heart for the kingdom overseas is we begin to see the beauty and the wonder and the goodness of the kingdom at work in our own lives wherever we are. It becomes a heart that longs to see Jesus at every work and every moment of our life to also be able to look at a world that is broken right in front of our face and say, I want to see the people who are hurt, and I want to see the power of Jesus open their eyes to another beautiful kingdom. As we see the beauty and the glory of this kingdom begins to give us a heart that longs to see this kingdom everywhere, throughout this world, proclaimed. To catch a true vision, right? When we first got married, we always had a uh, carpet in our homes. And Mariana was always really strict when we had carpet in our homes about me not wearing my shoes, my outside shoes in the house. Now, I come from rural Oklahoma in the country. We just came in muddy or whatever. I mean, one time my mom had to spray me off one time before I came in because I was so messy and dirty. But by and large, I just you know, if I track mud, she's like, hey, you need to sweep that up. And so I did not see the beauty of that right off the bat. But as I began living in this new way, eventually I began to see, hey, this is actually a better way. This is a better way of doing house. I began to see its goodness in it. And so I no longer became somebody who simply took my shoes off because I didn't want to get in trouble with my wife, but someone who actually truly believed in what she was saying. Finally, And this is just a few ways. These are not all. of This This is not comprehensive. I'm not saying this is all there is. But we go in faith and trust. The model we see of, of discipleship in scriptures is often that of apprenticeship. You're never going to be able to look inside yourself and say, okay, I'm equipped enough. I'm hungry enough. I'm sanctified enough to want to be part of God's mission have a heart of it. You're never going to do that. If you're constantly looking inside yourself, all you're going to see is inadequacy. God often sanctifies us and develops that heart, just as I said with the illustration with my wife, as we go in obedience, trusting that, you know, God, I'm struggling right now to have this heart for it. As I move about this, As I get to know this missionary couple, as I become friends and and begin supporting uh, Dan and Rachel or Armstrong or the ex or World Relief, we trust that God will work in our heart capturing our vision. And we pray in those moments that God would do so. We decide that uh, we're going to go out and do a mission trip and acknowledge that, hey, you know what? God may really change my heart in this process. And we pray that God does so. Not, so we do so not saying, God, I'm going to try to impress you or try to fool you into thinking that I care about this, but say, God, in this process of discipleship, change me. Open my heart to what you're doing. But ultimately, friends, it still comes back to this truth in this reality. If it comes to us ultimately being in a place of communion with God a place in which we are known and loved by the king himself. And so you're never going to have a heart for the kingdom until you've known and received the gracious love of the king. And so if you're here today and what you're hearing and maybe you're thirsty for is, tell me what I can do to impress God. Tell me what I can do to make myself feel not condemned by God. The answer isn't you going off to a mission trip, but rather you receiving the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ himself in you. It's to being changed by his love in your heart. That's where it begins. Define your identity not in saying, I'm a missionary, but rather I am a child of the king loved by his, because of his grace. I am justified by faith and faith alone. That's where the heart for the harvest begins, in encountering yourself a compassionate Savior by faith. Want you to do that today, Father? We thank you for your grace and for your love and for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that as we look your word, we see Jesus revealing to us the wonder and the compassion, the grace and the love that you have. We see a world that is so deeply broken. We can't, we can't look at it without being overwhelmed. Saying, why, why even bother? But yet you, in a love that is so beyond us, that are able to look at your children and say, I love you so much that I'm going to redeem you. I'm gonna redeem you by sending my beloved, eternal begotten Son, Jesus. to, To make you mine, to change you. Father, fill us with wonder of that love, but not just wonder, secure us in that love. And change us that we might have a heart for your harvest. A heart that longs to see the goodness of your kingdom come and take over and throw out the strong man of this world. Which ultimately Jesus did on the cross.